Okay, we're continuing on in our uh, series on Reformed Theology, uh, answering questions that may arise. Um, and today, we come across the big one. Um, we're going to come across a, a verse that pretty much everyone knows. Uh, it is one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. It is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. However, that can be dangerous sometimes because we have become so accustomed just to reciting these verses that we really um, don't look into the depths of the meaning. Um, and could our understanding of John 3.16 be not uh, correct? Um, you know, one of the things that you see and you hear a lot of and is when we start to look at people that come against the doctrine of uh, Reformed theology and the biblical truths, you know, one of the things that continues to come up is this word, whosoever. Um, you know, that seems to be the word that people fall back on. Thank God I'm a whosoever, or I'm a whosoever, and everybody's a whosoever. But is that really the truth? You know, we, we have hung our hats on that word. That's where we stand, and that's where we fall. However, the question is, was that word even in the original Greek when this verse was written? Would that make a difference to anyone? If it was proven that the word wasn't there, the word whosoever that we um, emphatically use as our um, biggest rebuttal to Reformed theology, if that wasn't in the original Greek, would that change anyone's mind? Well, the reason I ask that is because the word whosoever is not in the original Greek. So that foundation has already begun to be shaky because the word that we stand upon is not even in the original Greek language this verse was written. And John 3.16 is not what we have made it out to be. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight is how we look at John 3.16, how we uh, square away the whosoever, who is the whosoever, or more importantly, who, was there a whosoever there? It wasn't. So how do, we, how do we make sense of all this? Because when you say, hey, well, here's my first counter-argument uh, counter against Reformed theology, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoso, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We say, see, He loved the world. He loved everybody the same. See, whosoever. But let's begin to dive into this and see what the actual Greek says and see what these words mean to us because that changes the whole understanding of this verse. And here's the question I asked on the first video or the first podcast. If you were proven wrong based on analysis and biblical understanding, would you change your mind? Would you surrender to the authority of Scripture or would you hold on to tradition? Would you hold on to denomination? Would you hold on to your bias and everything you have been taught? Or would you surrender to the authority of God's Word, as that is the most important thing? Well, let's look at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Now, when we read this text, I, I can hear this because we've done it in our heads. Uh, we've done it, and I can hear it in my head. We've done this so many times. We, we say, for God so loved the world, He loved the world this much. And we extend our arms out as far as we can, and we say, this is how much He loved the world. For God so loved the world. 
But in the original Greek, that's not how it is written. In the original Greek, it would say something like this, for God loved the world in this way. You see the difference in there? This is how God loved the world. Then we come to the word world, and we demand that this means everyone. For God so loved the world, every single person he loved the same. Therefore, this speaks against the doctrines of election and predestination. For God loved the world. Well, the word world here means cosmos. It is Uh, It does not intend or have to imply every single human being on the planet. This word, cosmos, uh, has multiple different meanings. But we have forced upon this verse that it means every single person. Let me give you some examples and just show you how we have to be consistent and we have to look at the context of which a verse is written. In Luke chapter 2, when Caesar Augustus had decreed a tax go out, it said that he a tax went out across all the world, that all the world should be taxed. Now, do we believe that every single human being that lived on planet Earth at that time was in subjection to Caesar Augustus? Of course not. It was not every single person. The word world was those in his territory or his providence or his select group. So we've already got one example where the word world does not have to mean every single person. We also find this in John 12, 9, or 19, where when Jesus has just healed Lazarus and he's going into Jerusalem, uh, the Pharisees and the, the leaders there, they say that the whole world has gone after him. Now, do we honestly believe that every single person on planet Earth was following Jesus into Jerusalem? If you're honest with yourself, you know that's not true. So we have already seen that you can take the word world and it mean different things. We can't just force the same meaning into every context. We're told in 1 John to love not the world. Now, if we take that as every single human being on planet Earth, then we have a text that tells us to not love every single person in the world, which is a direct uh, command of God for us to love and to be Christ-like in how we act. So, you see, we have to be aware of the context. And this word cosmos can mean the universe, can mean the planets, can mean the Jew, the Greek. It does not have to mean every single person. And and this is what this text is showing. One of the things that we have to be acutely aware of is the mystery of the gospel. Why am I talking about the mystery of the gospel? If, if you were to ask uh, on Sunday... Go to every church in America and say, hey, what is the mystery of the gospel? I bet you the percentage would be very small of people who would know what the mystery of the gospel is. But the mystery of the gospel, it is huge. It is, it is a core foundation of all scripture. The mystery of the gospel is that salvation is offered to the Gentile, that the Gentiles have been grafted in, have been shown mercy. The people who were not his people are now called his people. This is important, and this is what this text is saying. For God so loved the world. Think about the Jew. They were were God's chosen people. They were were aware that they were God's chosen people. And to them, that their righteousness and who they were separated them from all the other nations. And you can even remember how big a deal it was at the temple where there was a wall of division. And the Gentile could only go up to a certain point. And then if they went past this wall of division or hostility that was in the temple, it would cost them their lives. 
That's why in Ephesians 2, he says with the death of Christ, that that wall of partition was done away with symbolically as Christ has brought the Jew and the Gentile together. That's the mystery of the gospel. If you recall how important it was that the, the Jew be reminded that the Gentile was grafted in and accepted in the beloved after the Holy Spirit came on earth after the resurrection of Christ. Because we see that in some of the councils, they were uh, saying, hey, listen, but the Gentile, uh, are you sure that they can be accepted into this? And they say, yeah, we saw that Gentiles are accepted into the faith and, and salvation has been brought to them. It's a big deal. It's the mystery of the gospel. So it, now salvation has not just been uh, just all about the Jew, but it has been expanded to the Gentile. This is what is mean by the world. All four corners, all nations, all tribes, all languages. I mean, think about this example. If someone says, I've traveled all over the world, does that mean you've been in every square inch of the world? You've been in every city in the world? No. You've been to the four corners. You've been all over the map. Think about who the kingdom of God entails. It is every nation, every language, every tribe. It is no longer exclusive to the Jew. It has been offered to the world, to the Jew and the Gentile. For God showed His love to the world, the Jew and the Gentile, in this way. That He gave His monogenes, His unique or only begotten Son. And here we come to it. Here's the heart of the matter. That whoever, or the KJV says, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish. Who are the whosoever? Well, let's stop for a second. That's not what the original Greek says. The original Greek says, pos ho pisterion. And you know what that means? All the believing ones. This is a promise of God. This is a wonderful promise of God. That all the believing ones, all the ones that put their faith in Christ, because the faith has been given to them as a gift, Philippians 1.29, they will not perish but have eternal life. It's like John 6 says, that those who the Father give, they come, and those who come, He does not cast out. Those who believe will find a perfect Savior. That changes the whole context. We, we stand and we say, whosoever, I'm a whosoever. The whosoever means everyone. That's not, what the, that's not what the text said. The original Greek says, for God loved the world in this way. God loved the cosmos in this way that he gave his unique, his monogenes, his one and only son, that all the believing ones, all the ones believing, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Who believes? Not everybody believes, because remember what the Bible says. Let's be consistent. Like I just mentioned, Philippians 1.29, the faith to believe has been granted to you by God. This does not mean every single person Christ died for. It does not mean that every single person is involved in this. It's all the believing ones. It's the elect of God. They're the ones who believe. So we cannot stand on the word whosoever anymore because it is not even in the original Greek. That word is not there. The context is all the believing ones. That makes it a very specific group. 
it is consistent with the doctrine of Reformed theology. What do we do with that? Well, we've got two choices. We continue to pound our fists. We continue to stand and say, I'm a whosoever. Therefore, the doctrines of election are false. Well, you've come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth is the Greek does not say that. Therefore, what do we do? All the believing ones. That's a specific group. That's not everyone. Let us begin to think about this and pray that the Spirit of God begins to change our minds and souls. He goes on to say this, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And we say, ha-ha, we got you. You see, might. It is might. It's, it's a possibility. Again, we have to understand the importance of the Greek language. That is the language to which it is written. And not everything in the Greek translates in the same way into the English. So we must go back to the, to the Greek to see what the true meaning of this is. What does that mean? Might. Well, in this term, that word might can either be an indicative or a subjunctive. And in this case, in the structure of the sentence, it is a subjunctive. What does that mean? The word might in our language is, oh, we hope. There's a possibility. But when in the Greek is used as subjunctive, it shows purpose or a result of. It is as a result of this, this will happen. It is permanent. It is assured. It is not left to chance or possibility. It is left to the assurance of God. He sent his, did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now, if we know that's a, subject, a subjunctive, and we know that means it's a direct result, then if we demand that the word world means every single person, then what we've got here again is universalism. Everyone's in heaven, but that the world, which every single person, if that's your belief, might, which is a subjective, which means as a result, or definitely will, be saved through him. Do we say that? You see, these things are important. That's why I think so many times these verses that we say over and over and over again, and we say, whosoever, 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 for God so loved the world, whosoever, whosoever, when we get into these things without actually studying them, without actually looking into the meaning, which actually, without looking to the Greek, we lose the meaning. What God is saying here is this. He did not send his son into the world to judge the world, those who would believe, all the believing ones, but that the world, the Jew and the Greek who believed, will emphatically be saved through him. It is a definite salvation to all the believing ones. He who believes in him is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then that section ends up with saying the same thing we talked about in the golden chain, that we hate the light. We hate the light. We want to stay in darkness. And only until God calls us out of light with that effectual call, like he did at creation, can we come into the light. Again, what do we do with this? So, yes, I believe John 3.16, 100%. I believe it speaks on the doctrines of election and Reformed theology, not universalism, because we must examine it. Study to show ourselves approved. We have to know what these verses say. Let's end with this on the word, whosoever. We go to that famous passage in Romans. And again, we see the mystery of the gospel come into play. But I want to read this to you really quickly. 
we can all quote this, Romans 10, 13, for whoever or for whosoever, if you have the KGV, will call the name of the Lord, will be saved. And we say, see, haha, that's everyone, whoever. That sounds good, but let's put the whole thing into context. Let's do that because that's important. Now we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that an unregenerated soul and an unregenerated heart cannot come to God on their own. No one seeks God. No one understands God. We're hostile. We're, we're enemies of God. And only until He changes that disposition of our will and begins to uh, change us by His Holy Spirit, He regenerates our soul, then we come to have affection for Him. Listen to this. I've, I've heard this say said, and here's the heart of Reformed theology, that we believe that regeneration of the soul precedes faith. And I've been told there's nowhere in the Bible that says that. Well, you're getting ready to hear it. Listen to what it says. In chapter 10, verse 9, you, we've all heard this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? If you confess with your mouth. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us very specifically, it says that no one can confess he's Lord or God or Yahweh without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to bring that to you. And then it says, in believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What kind of heart can believe in God? The Bible is emphatically clear that our hearts before salvation, before God has done any work in our soul, we have a heart of stone. We are, found, we are told that and found in Ezekiel 36. He says our hearts are stone. And he has to change our heart of stone and take it out and put in a heart of flesh. Again, ask yourself, what does the Bible say about the unregenerated soul? It's unable to do anything pleasing to God. It is unable. No one seeks God. No one comes to God in our total depravity. There is not one unregenerated heart that brought to its own uh, working would ever come and say, I believe in you. Because it says that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Only a regenerated heart can do that. You see, the regeneration has to take place. God is the one who takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And then that heart is the heart that can call upon His name. See, regeneration comes first. Anyone that's ever called in the name of the Lord is because before you did that, He took out that heart of stone. He gave you a heart of flesh. And then He granted you the ability to have faith and believe in Him. And then you confessed and you believed in that heart. There's the text that says regeneration precedes it because an unregenerated heart cannot do the things that are mentioned in this verse. And God has to regenerate your soul first. And you don't do that on your own. That is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. How much did you have to do with your, your natural birth? You had zero to do with that. And that's the same way with your supernatural birth. You see, we just we put a little context in it. You begin to exegete through this, that you have to be regenerated first. It is the work of God first. It is Him who salvation is from and through and to. He goes on to say, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. That goes and tells us, Yes, whoever believes, all the believing ones will never be disappointed because Christ is a perfect Savior. And He says in John 6, All that are given by the Father, they come, and He will never cast them out. 
And then here's where we get the point. We have to look in context. Remember the word world, Jew and Greek, every four corners, every, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It says, for there is no distinction between the Jew and Greek. You see, this is the point. This is the context. The Jew and the Greek, that's the world. It's not just exclusive to the Jew. The mystery of the gospel is it's open to everyone, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. It is not limited to just the Jew. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, the mystery of the gospel. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Who's the all? The Jew and the Greek. He says, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Not just the Jew. You see, we have to put it in context. Not just the Jew, but the Greek. That's the world. That's the whosoever. It's for everyone. So right after chapter, or chapter 10, verse 12, who says there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, He's the Lord of all, the saint of all Jew and the Greek. Here comes verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whatever Jew calls on his name will be saved. Whatever Gentile calls on his name will be saved. That's the promise. Whosoever does not mean every single human being. It is all the believing ones. And all the believing ones are there. Because they've been chosen from the foundation of the world. Their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And that God has granted them mercy and grace. He's changed their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He's given them the faith to believe. Then they confess. And this is the mystery of the gospel. That it's not just for the Jew. It's for the world. For the Jew... And praise God for the Gentile, that all the believing ones who call on his name because he's given them the ability to do so will find a perfect Savior. I love John 3.16. It's the most beautiful verse, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. And we've missed it for so long. But once you see the beauty of it, it's better than what we've made it. I'm thankful for this verse, and I pray that God will use these words to pierce our souls. We're commanded to believe what the Bible says, not what we want the Bible to say. John 3.16, what an amazing verse.